There are a few examples of statement architecture in the world, iconic structures that are meant to impress and overawe, to make a statement to the citizenry of the land. A few examples come to mind, the Great Wall of China, the Pyramids of Giza. In modern times, we have the World Trade Center in New York, especially after 9-11. Some good examples from Europe, which we've talked about over the past few episodes, are St. Peter's Basilica in Rome or the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Which brings us to London, where there are not one, but two examples of statement architecture. The first one symbolizes the soul and culture of the nation and the other symbolizes the power of royalty. One is like a British Valhalla, a hall of fame highlighting Britain's place in Western civilization. The other has been the setting for some of the most momentous events in European and British history. This building is also soaked in blood. Hello and welcome to Snapshots from Europe Travelogue. I am your host, Brian Unger providing the historical, cultural, and geographical backstories for some of the greatest destinations in Europe to help you get a fuller appreciation for these places when you visit. We've kicked off Season 2, highlighting the three most popular and heavily visited cities in Europe, Rome, Paris, and today we tackle London. Usually, we look at the backstories of 10 significant sites in each destination so you get a sense of what makes these sites worth visiting. Now, London is bursting with cool things to see and do. So much so that the famous playwright, George Bernard Shaw said, when you are tired of London, you are tired of life. But two London sites tower over the others. No pun intended, you'll see what I mean soon enough. These two deserve a standalone episode as they basically tell the story of England. If you get these two sites, you get England. But don't worry, we'll get to our usual 10 city highlights. The others will come next week in episode two. So let's go to London and find out what all the fuss is about. We need to start at the beginning. Now there are a few stories we need to tell to get to our two featured sites in today's episode. So if we go back to the beginning, as you can probably imagine, there has been settlement in and around modern-day London for thousands of years, but there really hasn't been much that archaeologists have found. So the story of London really begins with the Romans. They invaded in 43 CE, and about four years later, they established a civilian town on the banks of the Thames River, which was named Londinium. And soon it was buzzing with a population of around 60,000 people. But the Romans didn't stick around for very long. And in the year 410, the Roman occupation of Britannia came to an end. Londinium went into a rapid decline, and by the end of the 5th century, the place was practically abandoned. The Anglo-Saxons were the next who migrated to this abandoned city from the North Sea coastlands of continental Europe. The city was laid out in a grid pattern, and at that time, about 12,000 people lived there. And for Anglo-Saxons, Londinium became known as Lundwick. Then the year 604 comes along, pretty big event, when an Anglo-Saxon king named Ethelbert converted to Christianity, and he built himself a little church. He dedicated this church to St. Paul. It wasn't exactly the St. Paul's Cathedral that it is today, but it was a start. After Ethelbert, you've got a series of kings with awesome names like Ethelherd, Ethelwolf, and Ethelbald. 
You've probably picked up on the Ethel theme by now. Ethel means noble or well-born. But one of the more interesting Ethel kings is the wonderfully named Ethelred the Unready. Now bear with me as I spin the tale of Ethelred the Unready, because we need this story to get to the first of today's two featured sites. Ethelred the Unready was only seven years old when his father died, and he was 10 when he succeeded to the throne after his less wonderfully named half-brother Edward the Martyr was assassinated. Now, Ethelred had his hands full. And for the record, his moniker, Ethelred the Unready, is not what you think. In the old Anglo-Saxon, red means wise or well-advised, which was the name that was given to Ethel upon his birth. However, during his reign, he turned out to be not so wise or not so well-advised, hence the name Unready. So if you do the math, his name is a classic oxymoron. He is King Ethel the Wise, who was unwise. In spite of this, it's common for present-day Britons to call anyone who is late or just can't get their act together, they call them Ethelred, as in, come on, Ethelred, you're going to be late. So when you go to London, use that phrase, and you'll fit right in. Anyway, old Ethelred, he had his hands full. First of all, he had a whopping 10 children that are known from his first wife. Not surprisingly, this poor woman died in childbirth in her early 30s. Seems it didn't take Ethelred long to get over her because he immediately hooked up with Emma of Normandy. She was the daughter of Richard, Duke of Normandy. This was a political marriage designed to keep the French happy and it introduced the Normans to the English royal bloodline. That's an important point as we'll see shortly. Ethelred and Emma, they had three kids, including an eldest son named Edward. We'll come back to him later as well. When Ethelred wasn't dealing with wives and his at least 13 kids, he was constantly being harassed by Viking invaders. It seemed like the best way to keep them at bay was to pay tribute, which became known as Danegeld. This worked for a while, but it turned out to be a bust because he soon lost his throne to the Viking Sven Forkbeard in the year 1013. How good a name is that? So Ethelred, he fled to Normandy in his wife Emma's home country of France. Now, Forkbeard, Forkbeard didn't last too long. He died in 1014, and Ethelred was able to return to London, and he was restored to the throne, but he died only a couple of years later in the year 1016. After Ethelred's death, next man up was Canute the Great. Turns out that Emma of Normandy, the former wife of Ethelred, uh, he, she kind of liked being queen. So she very quickly married Canute. Might want to call her Emma the Ready. Even better, she produced an heir within a year, and the kid's name was Hardy Canute. In case you're wondering, Hardy Canute means tough knot. Sure enough, this tough knot became king of England in 1040, but only two years later, he went ahead and died, apparently from convulsions at a drinking party. So the throne now passed to Ethelred and Emma's firstborn son, Edward. Now he is known in history as Edward the Confessor, which is a moniker he earned on account of the fact that he was extraordinarily pious. Now, job one for Edward 
was to build a royal burial church where he could properly be interred. To that end, he committed to building an immense abbey in the fields a mile or so west of the walled city of London. Now, a monastery church is called a minster. Since this was to be built in the west, it was called Westminster, as opposed to the Eastminster of St. Paul's, that was London's official cathedral. Now, Edward the Confessor wanted his great minster to dazzle and overawe visitors. It would be nearly 100 meters long, towering above the banks of the Thames River. This was the largest church, and in fact, the largest building of any sort, and the only Romanesque-style building in all of Anglo-Saxon England. So are you ready? Here we go. This is the first of our two sites that tell the story of England. This is the building that Edward built, Westminster Abbey. And it's more than just an abbey. It is the most famous English church in Christendom, where royalty has been wedded, crowned, and buried since the 11th century. It's been said that the histories of Westminster Abbey and the history of England, the two are almost the same. It was completed in the year 1060, and it was consecrated in December of 1065. Edward was so excited that he went ahead and died a week after the building was consecrated on January 5th, 1066. But the good news is he got to be buried in his new abbey. Because he was known for his piousness, people began praying at his tomb. And after getting some good results, Edward the Confessor was made a saint. So it seemed that after this, it would be a good idea to bury royalty in the abbey. And what follows is a hall of fame of British kings and queens. The remains of 29 of them are under its stone slabs today. A highlight in the abbey is the tomb of Queen Elizabeth I, which features a very impressive effigy of her. Now, you might be familiar with the story. Elizabeth was considered the bastard seed of King Henry VIII's unsanctioned marriage to Anne Boleyn, but she went on to have a long reign as one of England's most successful monarchs. And about the effigy, her face on the effigy was modeled on her death mask, and it is said to be a very accurate and realistic replica of the Virgin Queen. And something else that's kind of curious about the tomb is that Elizabeth isn't the only one there. Elizabeth's half-sister, the infamous Bloody Mary, is parked in the same tomb. Bloody Mary earned her nickname by burning Protestants, who she deemed heretics in an attempt to swing England back towards Catholicism. This seems kind of ignominious, having to share a tomb with her more popular sister. Mary disliked Elizabeth in life, and now she has to lie beside her for all eternity. And Mary didn't even get an effigy. There's a really interesting Latin inscription on the tomb that you should look at when you're there. It says, here we lie, two sisters, in hope of one resurrection. Another tomb you don't want to miss is the tomb of Mary, Queen of Scots. This is such a juicy story. I'm tempted to do a Kings and Queens podcast where I'd probably lead with this tale. Mary was a beautiful Catholic queen of Scotland who was Elizabeth's cousin, and she was considered a threat to Elizabeth's crown. Now, there's a lot to this story, but it culminated with Elizabeth putting Mary under house arrest for 19 years, and eventually she had Mary beheaded. 
Since Elizabeth died childless, Mary's son, King James IV of Scotland, was the next man up in the chain of heredity, so he got tapped to be the next English monarch. He was crowned King James I of England. And what does he do? <laughs> he goes and retrieves his mother's head, sewed it back on her body, and had her buried in what is Westminster's Abbey's most sumptuous tomb. And this will be one of the highlights of your visit. And these monarchs only scratch the surface. You've also got eight prime ministers. You've got poets like Geoffrey Chaucer, who's considered the father of English literature. You've got Lord Byron, lover of women and adventure. The romantic but alcoholic Dylan Thomas. You got Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland. Throw in T.S. Eliot, Lord Tennyson, and Charles Dickens. You've got a lot of real luminaries there. William Shakespeare isn't buried there, but there's a great statue of him in Westminster Abbey where you can pay your respects. And how about scientists? You've got tombs and memorials to Isaac Newton, arguably the greatest scientist of all time. And how about Charles Darwin? I find this kind of ironic because his pioneering work in evolution was a massive challenge to the church. Michael Faraday, pioneer in electricity, is there right beneath Newton. And in 2018, Stephen Hawking was laid to rest right between Charles Darwin and Isaac Newton, which truly puts him in the pantheon of some of the greatest, one of the greatest scientists in all of history. Westminster Abbey has been described as Britain's Valhalla after the iconic hall of the chosen heroes in North mythology, Norse mythology. Now, I acknowledge I'm a history geek, so I probably can't speak for everyone. But for me personally, Westminster Abbey is a place of awe and wonder. To pause in front of each of these graves and consider the enormous significance and legacy of each, it's kind of like being in the presence of greatness. All told, 3,300 people have been laid to rest in what it can only be described as a British Hall of Fame. And there's more. This is the place where every English monarch, with the ex exception of one, was crowned ever since William the Conqueror in the year 1066. In Westminster Abbey, you'll find the coronation chair sitting under a regal canopy. And this has been used since the year 1308. And if burials and coronations aren't your thing, how about royal weddings? 16 of them have taken place in the Abbey, going way back to King Henry I, in the year 1100. Not sure how many people were in attendance watching King Henry get married in the year 1100, but fast forward almost a thousand years later, over two billion people worldwide watched Prince William get hitched to Kate in the year 2011. And speaking of William, in 1997, the funeral of Prince William's mother, Princess Diana, was also held at Westminster Abbey. All of that is a lot to take in when you visit. For me, I would rate West Westminster Abbey near the very top as one of the most significant and historically meaningful buildings in all of Europe. And it all started with Edward the Confessor in the 11th century. There is a second hugely important London site that is soaked in history and blood, which has come to define the city and the country. And again, we need to get into a few stories before we get to this site and understand the significance of it. 
If Westminster Abbey is a spiritual and cultural heart of England, where we are going next represents the power of the monarch. You'll find more bloody history per square inch here than anywhere else in Britain, and you'll find an awful lot more. And as with the story of Westminster Abbey, we start once again with Edward the Confessor. Now, I mentioned that Edward earned his nickname the Confessor because he was so pious. How pious do you ask? Well, he took a vow of celibacy. This is a pretty standard practice if you want to be a monk, but um, not so much if you are a king. And it would turn out to be a bit of a problem, as we'll see. You see, Edward married Edith, who was the daughter of the powerful Earl Godwin. Now, Godwin was hoping that Edward and his daughter would produce an heir, and that would solidify the place of the Godwin family in the inner circle of royalty for generations. Now, it turns out it's tough to produce an heir when you are celibate. There's no record of how Edith felt about all of this. And this created a problem with the royal succession, because if you have no offspring, you're not going to have an heir. So it was up to Edward the Confessor to name an heir. Now, this is where it gets quite confusing. At the end of the year 1065, Edward fell ill and he went into a coma before he had clarified his preference for the succession. Very inconvenient. As he reached the end, he went in and out of consciousness. And at one point, he apparently commended his widow and the kingdom to his wife's brother, Harold Godwinson, for protection. Then on January 6th, 1066, which would be a very big year in English history, Edward the Confessor died. So I guess this means that Harold Godwinson gets to take over as the next king of England. Now, not everyone was convinced that this was legit, but Harold was able to convince enough people that he was the chosen one. So off he went to the newly constructed Westminster Abbey where he was crowned King Harold. And this was only a couple of days after Edward had expired. But it wasn't going to be that easy. Well, let's shift over to Normandy now, on the north coast of France. We're going to talk about a sunny day when there was a lowly tanner's daughter named Herlev. She was washing clothes bare-legged in a stream. Passing by was Duke Robert of Normandy, and he couldn't help but notice this lovely lass. Now, it seemed that Robert wasn't very discreet because as he was leering at her, her lev kind of picked up on the fact that she was being checked out. And apparently, her lev knew that she had great legs because she immediately proceeded to hike up her dress just a little bit more than she needed to. I probably don't need to spell out what happened next, but nine months later, a son was born. But the birth was illegitimate, so this boy who was born was saddled with the unfortunate name of William the Bastard. But William did have something going for him. If you'll remember, Ethelred the Unready married Emma from Normandy. Their son was Edward the Confessor. And Emma of Normandy was a sister of Duke Robert of Normandy which gave Robert's bastard son, William, a distant but not insignificant link to the English throne. It probably wouldn't amount to anything, you know, but you never know. Well, William the Bastard grew up, and he went on to have a good deal of military success, and he built Normandy into a dynamic power. 
But no matter what he did, he was always known as William the Bastard. He wasn't crazy about this moniker, and his enemies didn't miss any opportunity to rub it in his face. While besieging a castle in France, a garrison inside went to great lengths to point out his bastard origins. Since William's unwed mother, Herlev, came from a family of tanners, they hung animal hides over the ramparts of the garrison and they beat them just to get under William's skin. Turns out that William didn't have much of a sense of humor because after he captured the fort, he ordered that 32 of them would have their hands and their feet severed in front of the townsfolk. Well, the plot thickens because William claimed that he had met with Edward the Confessor in 1051, where he was assured that based on his remote blood ties, he would become Edward's heir. You can see how it would have been a whole lot easier if Edward just would have loosened up a little bit, done his husbandly duties, and produced some children of his own. Well, let's fast forward from 1051 with this meeting with William and uh, Edward the Confessor to the year 1066. Edward the Confessor is now dead, and Harold Godwinson has claimed the throne that William imagined should be his. So William built a large fleet, and he invaded England in September of 1066, where he decisively defeated and killed Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings on November 14, 1066. He would be William the Bastard no more. After the Battle of Hastings, he was now William the Conqueror. He got to admit that has a much better ring to it. He continued to push north from the coast up towards London, and on Christmas Day, 1066, William the Conqueror was crowned King of England. The course of English history would be irrevocably changed. The Anglo-Saxons were done, the Normans were in, and a new era of English history had begun. William's new regime established new fortresses within London to dominate the native population, and between 1066 and 1087, William established an astonishing 36 castles. It has been described as the most extensive and concentrated program of castle building in the whole history of feudal Europe. But, the most significant and imposing of these fortifications would be reserved for, of course, London. In the words of William's biographer, a guy by the name of William of Poitiers, he claimed that William realized that it was of the first importance to overawe the Londoners. William needed a sign of his triumph, a monument to his great power and strength. Now, most of the early Norman castles were built from timber, but owing to the significance of the London fortress, this would have to be built with stone. Using the southeast corner of the Roman town walls as a foundation, work began on the White Tower. This would be the biggest and boldest building ever undertaken in England. And this is where the Tower of London gets its name. And in case you hadn't guessed yet, this is the second monumental site that defines England. This tower was intended to be a symbol of power, and it remains so today. This is what is meant by statement architecture. The White Tower was the earliest stone keep in England, and it served several purposes. It provided grand accommodation for the king. It was also an armory, a treasury, a menagerie, the home of the royal mint, a public record office, and the home of the crown jewels in England. 
but it's probably best known as a prison. And there's a long and colorful list of prisoners who have been held there. There are dozens of interesting tales from the tower that we could insert here. And when you go to on your visit, you'll most likely go on a tour guided by the beef eaters. And you don't want to miss this. The beef eaters are the ceremonial guardians of the Tower of London. Originally, they were King Henry VII's personal guards, and they got the name Beef Eater because they were permitted to eat as much beef as they wanted to from the king's table. Now, these beef eaters have been doing these tours since the Victorian era, and when you go on this, you are guaranteed to be entertained. Your beef eater guide might start by telling you about the first recorded prisoner of the Tower of London. Turns out he was a bishop, and he'd been locked up around the year 1100 because he was loathed by the English for imposing overly harsh taxes on them. But the bishop was held in luxury, and he was even permitted to have servants. One day he hosted a banquet for his captors, and after plying them with drink, when no one was looking, he lowered himself from the tower using a rope that had been smuggled into his quarters in a vat of wine. So this bishop was not only the first person to be imprisoned in the tower, he was also the first person to escape from the tower. The place where this happened may well be on your beef eater tour. There are so many other interesting stories connected to the Tower of London, but one of the most notorious ones is that of the princes in the tower. In the year 1483, King Edward IV died unexpectedly. And that made his 12-year-old son, Edward, the heir apparent to become King Edward V. He and his younger brother, Richard, were then taken to the tower for, quote-unquote, safekeeping by Edward IV's brother, Richard. Well, that's the last anyone saw of the princes in the tower as they went missing. This allowed Richard to crown himself King Richard III. And he was later immortalized as the ultimate villain in Shakespeare's epic play, King Richard. So the question is, what did happen with these poor lads? Well, in the year 1674, workmen at the tower dug up a wooden box that was under a staircase, and it contained two small human skeletons. These bones were largely accepted or widely accepted to be that of the princes. So the king at the time, King Charles II, had these bones buried in Westminster Abbey, something else to look up when you go see the abbey. But the debate rages, did these bones really belong to the princes in the tower? Two and a half centuries later, in the year 1933, just last century, the bones were extracted from the resting place in Westminster Abbey, and they were examined. And the conclusion they came to, well, they did agree that these were the bones of two boys, roughly 10 and 12 years old, which are the same ages as the princes. So it's quite likely that they were the infamous princes in the tower. And with modern DNA testing, it could be conclusively proven today. But for now, the bones remain resting in the abbey undisturbed. What is still up for debate is whether Richard was responsible for their murders. We'll probably never know for sure. The tower was also the site for many executions, and one stands out above all others. And this has actually a personal connection with me, which I'll get to in a minute here. The Tudor king, Henry VIII, had been happily married to Catherine of Aragon for 24 years. She was in every way an ideal queen, except she had one serious shortcoming. 
she was not able to produce the male heir that Henry so desperately wanted. It's not like Catherine was infertile or anything. She became pregnant several times, but unfortunately, she always seemed to miscarry. Although she did give birth to one healthy child, but it was a girl, and they named the girl Mary. It seemed that a boy just wasn't in the cards. So Henry's wandering eye settled on one of Catherine's lady and ladies-in-waiting. Her name was Anne Boleyn. He initially sought her out as a mistress. After all, Anne's older sister Mary was already in Henry's harem, but either due to virtue or more likely driven by ambition, she refused. She told Henry, if you want to take me into your bed, you have to make me your wife. Well, Henry was smitten, so he went about making arrangements to divorce his wife of 24 years, Catherine. Problem is, the Pope would have to sign off on this divorce, and there was no way he was going to do that. So Henry concocted a pretty wild scheme. He would have to break with the Roman Catholic Church, create a new Protestant Church of England, and he would then make himself head of the new church. And as his first official act, he would grant himself a divorce. That is how the Anglican Church was formed. So Catherine of Aragon was banished to a convent while Anne fulfilled her duty and became pregnant. And lo and behold, Anne went on to give birth to a healthy infant child. Bad news is, like Catherine, the child was a girl. She was named Elizabeth, the future Queen Elizabeth I. Anne had two more miscarriages. It seemed that she was no more able to produce a male heir than Catherine was. Now, Henry was always very spiritually superstitious, so he began to question whether he had made the right choice in marrying Anne in the first place. And on top of that, Anne was a very strong-willed and opinionated woman who was kind of unpopular with some of Henry's advisors. So, as you can imagine, the king's eye began to wander, and he settled on another lady-in-waiting. Her name was Jane Seymour. That meant that Anne Boleyn would have to go. So they leveled accusations of adultery on Anne, and they even suggested that she was plotting against the king's life, and her brother and a small group of courtiers were also implicated. So they had a sham trial. It was filled with Anne's enemies, and of course, she was found guilty, and she then found herself a prisoner at the Tower of London in the same royal apartment where just three years earlier, she had awaited her coronation. Henry showed her a small mercy by granting her a request to die by a sword rather than an axe. I guess that's preferable. Her last words were, I hear the executioner is very good and I have a little neck, followed by a nervous giggle. Anne Boleyn was executed on Tower Green on May 19, 1536, while Henry VIII married Jane Seymour 11 days after Anne's execution. Now, here's the personal connection. As a wee lad of 17 years old, I still remember my first visit to Tower Green within the walls of the Tower of London where Anne Boleyn was executed. Now, seriously, standing on this location and pondering this event, it was almost life-changing for me. I remember being almost overwhelmed with the power and the significance of what happened on the very place where I was standing. I almost felt like I was a part of the event in a small way. And that moment provided inspiration for me to lead a life of travel. And many decades later, I'm so glad that I did. And for that reason, 
the Tower of London will always be very special to me. Others were executed there, including Henry VIII's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, in the year 1542, and the nine-day queen, Lady Jane Grey, in 1554. One of the exhibits you'll see at the tower is the axe that was used to behead some of the victims on the chopping block of the tower. In 1941, the last execution was carried out at the Tower of London. The victim's name was Joseph Jacobs. He was found guilty of spying for Germany during the Second World War. But no axe for him. He died by firing squad. But there's so much more to the Tower of London than dungeons and executions. In 1235, King Henry III was delighted to be presented with three leopards by the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, at least he called them leopards. And he even put leopards in the heraldry of the king's shield, but they were probably lions. Whatever the case, it inspired the king to start a zoo at the tower. Over time, the collection of animals grew. The lions were joined by a polar bear in 1252 and an African elephant in 1255. Londoners flocked to see this novel sight. A brand new elephant house was built for the beast, and he was given a dedicated keeper. But after a few years, the poor beast died. In fact, most of the animals in this little zoo did not survive, although for some reason, lions and tigers fared quite well, and quite a few cubs were born. This may explain why the lion has been adopted as the national animal of England, and while they're definitely not indigenous to their country, they really love their lions. English medieval warrior rulers would often take the nickname the lion. And the most famous example of that is Richard I of England, who was known as Richard the Lionheart. And you'll often see lions depicted in English heraldry. So they played up the lion thing big time at the Tower of London. By the 14th century, a permanent new home was created for the lions in the western entrance to the tower. It became known as the Lion Tower, and it was meant to terrify, impress, and intimidate visitors. And there were other exotic animals that were also stockpiled there so that British royals would have an inventory for the common practice which medieval monarchs had of exchanging rare and strange animals with each other as gifts. Today, no more menagerie, but there are lion sculptures and other animal installations that you will see on that site that commemorate these former inhabitants of the tower. You're also going to love the armory where you'll see suits of armor worn by many kings, including King Henry VIII. You'll see this one from his youth, which looks about right for a svelte, athletic man, and a later one from later in his life when he became disgustingly obese. That suit of armor is much, much larger. Touring the Royal Mint in the tower is also really interesting. This was installed way back in the year 1279, and it continued making coins all the way to the 19th century. You'll see the process of how coins were made in this hot and noisy mint, where these huge fiery furnaces melted down the precious metals. This was a very dangerous process. One man would place the metal between two engraved stamps called dies, and then another would strike it with a hammer. You had to be really alert. Split-second timing was critical, as it was very common for mint workers to lose a finger or even an eye. And that doesn't even factor in the dangers of the deadly chemicals and poisonous gases that contaminated the air in the mint. Coins were stamped with the face of the monarch 
and for the majority of their subjects in the kingdom, this was the only way they could see what their king or queen looked like. Now, sometimes mint workers got a little bit greedy by stealing bits of precious metal by clipping edges of a coin. This was considered treason. Counterfeiting was also a problem, so much so that Sir Isaac Newton, of all people, started looking into it, and he became so good at catching counterfeiters, he was made master of the mint in the year 1699. Another place you'll want to visit on your tour is the Bloody Tower. That's where the prisoners were held, and the chapel where the three executed queens of England, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard, and Lady Jane Grey are buried. Another highlight, you may see the Tower Ravens. There are seven ravens that live at the tower, and they're cared for by a beefeater, yeoman warder, known as the Raven Master. The story goes that should the ravens leave the tower, both it and the kingdom will fall. So no one wants to take a chance of that happening, so some of the feathers from each bird are trimmed to stop them from flying away. And I haven't even mentioned what many people say is the highlight of their visit to the tower, the crown jewels. This is certainly the most popular and the busiest exhibit. The jewels include all of the coronation regalia, the crowns, the orbs, the scepters of the British monarchy. The highlight is probably the Kulinan diamond, which is also known as the Great Star of Africa. How big is it? 530 carats. It is the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. And what's also kind of cool is that this is a working collection. The imperial state crown is usually worn by the monarch for the state opening of parliament. And when the next coronation comes around, will it be King Charles as the next king of England? We'll see. Key items will be taken to Westminster Abbey in readiness for the ceremony. Over 30 million people have seen the crown jewels at the tower at one time or another. They are possibly the most visited objects in Britain and even perhaps you could say the whole world. So when you go to the Tower of London to make your visit, go early and see the crown jewels before you do anything else. Great Britain is a traveler's paradise. With its enormous influence on the Western world, the country is bursting with all kinds of first-rate sites of great significance. And in my opinion, nearly everything you see in the country is in some way related to Westminster Abbey and or the Tower of London. They form the foundation upon which the country was built. To understand these two sites is to understand the history of England. And as for London itself, the city, it may be forever reinventing itself. I mean, icons of the modern era are buildings like the Shard and the Gherkin. Many neighborhoods have been gentrified. And the most popular paid tourist attraction in the UK is a somewhat tacky London Eye, which is a Ferris wheel. But Westminster Abbey and the Tower of London remain. They have seen it all, done it all, been a part of it all. But of course, there's much, much, much more to do in London. I promised you 10 great attractions to visit, different ways to experience the city. So with two down, we have eight more to go. So tune in next week where we'll complete our tour of the city. In the meantime, 
pop onto my Instagram, Snapshots Travelog, for a few pictures that will connect with today's episode. So I hope you're back for next week's episode of London Part 2. And in the meantime, keep calm and travel on.